Hello everybody, my name is Max Cassidy, and this is Soren in the 21st. This is the first episode in what I hope will be a long series of helpful guides in what I believe are some of the most impactful Christian writings of all time. Now having said this, I aim to help elaborate and explain some of the most profound ideas in all of Christian philosophy. If you haven't gathered this yet, I'm talking about the ideas of Soren Kierkegaard. If you've already read some of Kierkegaard's work and enjoyed it, and sought out a podcast for that very reason, you're golden. However, if you don't know or care about this random dead guy, then I urge you to listen to this podcast with an open mind and try and see if it doesn't impact you in a meaningful way. Either way, glad to have you with us and thanks for questioning why we believe what we believe. So before we jump right into things, it's important to note a few things about Soren Kierkegaard. He was a philosopher, born in May of 1813 in Copenhagen, Denmark, a philosopher, a theologian, and a major source of controversy in society because of his Christian beliefs. Now, as a child, he was very sickly and wasn't supposed to live very long, and we see this in the way he understands and proclaims Christianity. Now, there's so much more we can get into, but for now we're going to move on to the beginning of our first series on the book Works of Love. I selfishly selected this first book because I believe it's where Kierkegaard makes some of his most profound claims on the way we view Christianity and the cornerstone of society. I'm talking about love. Now, before he starts Deliberation 1, he prefaces his book with two key articles. The first is a prayer, and the second is a disclaimer of sorts. The prayer goes something like this. Quote, How could love be rightly discussed if you were forgotten, O God of love, source of all love in heaven and on earth? You who spared nothing but gave all in love. How could love be properly discussed if you were forgotten? You who made manifest what love is. There are only a few acts which human language specifically and narrowly call works of love, but heaven is such that no act can be pleasing unless it is an act of love, sincere and self-reunification impelled by love itself, and for this very reason claiming no compensation. End quote. This is condensed, so I urge you to look it up in its entirety, but it's good we start the series with this prayer because it allows us, the readers, and the listeners to understand the posture that's intended for us to maintain when we approach this monstrous task of understanding what love is. The second article is Kierkegaard telling the reader that they're not going to like the book, which seems peculiar, but he emphasizes that it's going to challenge the way that we view love and relationship, and probably won't be too pleasant. But if an attempt is made to truly take inventory of our hearts, it has the potential to change lives. So I offer you the same courtesy. If you like where you're at, and you don't want to pursue the possibility that society's perception of love is flawed, then you might not want to continue. However, if you're ready to take the chance and discover that God has far more intended for this horrendously overused term we call love, then we can continue. Kierkegaard begins his book by stating that it's easy to be, and he uses the term self-deceived, to believe what is not true or to not believe what is true, and that the worst type of this self-deception is to defraud oneself of love, either by not believing in love or by misunderstanding what love really is. The cornerstone of what love is to Kierkegaard is simply, you shall love. Now you might say, wait, you shall kind of sounds like a duty, which seems burdensome or wrong. 
Love should occur spontaneously, not because we feel as though we have to love. After all, is it not spontaneous love what we experience? When we first meet that special someone in our lives? The warm feeling we get when someone we care about says I love you? Well, Kierkegaard would say, that's not love. Or at least not Christian love. Despite what we might think, those warm, fuzzy feelings won't last forever. I mean, what happens when you lose your job, or get old, or any form of adversity comes into view? Those warm, fuzzy feelings dissipate quickly. And when that is what a relationship is built on, what do you do then? In the popular show Rick and Morty, the main protagonist, Rick Sanchez, a mad scientist and avid nihilist, tries to ruin his grandson's view of love by saying, quote, that feeling you call love is nothing more than a chemical reaction that compels animals to breed. It hits hard and then slowly fades away, leaving you in a loveless marriage. Break the cycle, focus on science, end quote. This has become an anthem of angsty high schoolers all over, but despite the fact that Kierkegaard would fundamentally disagree with nearly every philosophical idea that Rick holds, he would agree with the scientists on this. Kierkegaard would say, yes, that feeling you call love is just a chemical reaction, but he would differentiate one key aspect, and that is that feeling is not love at all, it's merely a feeling. That in fact, true Christian love, the eternal love that we're called to, is far more powerful than something we cherish in a single moment. When we ground love for one another in duty, this protects and secures it from any change. We never have to worry about what if, for whatever reason, we aren't rich or beautiful or our jokes aren't as funny as they used to be. The love we share is not going to disappear. We see that so often, as love and happiness can so quickly transform into hate. Another caution Kierkegaard gives us is that the feeling of love has to be reciprocated. So often we love people because they will love us back. Now make no mistake, no one will deny that when someone does something kind for you, your natural inclination will be to reciprocate that same kindness as a form of appreciation. My wife gets up when the baby was crying. It was just so nice to stay in bed. I want to make her breakfast in the morning. Well, this is a beautiful display of teamwork and affection. We run into a problem when we only get out of bed because we know our partner will make us breakfast. This becomes transactional. And Soren would ask, what happens when she doesn't get the baby? Does that mean I don't have to make breakfast? The problem we run into is that it's based on reciprocity. And the second that doesn't happen, everything falls apart. The point Kierkegaard is trying to drive home and continues to pursue is that when we love for the sole purpose of what we can gain, we immediately deviate from what Christian love is. And to deviate from what Christian love is is to put a timer or a finite list of things that must happen for love to be present. As humans, we will always fail to achieve that standard, no matter how low the bar might be. This love doesn't only apply to a lover, but also to a friend. When we look at our friends, we might have to examine what we're looking to gain. It's so easy to love people that are rich and powerful, because perhaps one might think, I too am rich and powerful or popular. And I'm talking about the loser in high school that somehow wins the lottery. All of a sudden, his crush Kathy, who never knew he existed, is suddenly 
overwhelmed with feelings of affection for him. The football team wants to spend Friday nights with him. And that's all fine and well insofar as he stays rich and powerful. But what happens when he blows through that prize money in three years? The same applies to the inverse. We love to care for the poor and the needy. Hey, look at me. Look at how charitable I am. This person was poor. I gave them time and money. Because everyone loves to be viewed as kind and charitable. Kierkegaard would look at the social justice warriors today with astonishment. How can one person care so much and be so passionate with so much love for every man, woman, and child in Africa? And in the same breath, with a burning passion, hate the guy who cuts you off in traffic? Or the co-worker who feels the need to tell you why Donald Trump will save America? Or the guy at your coffee shop who constantly drones on about how oppressed he is? Why don't we start there? Kierkegaard would say, because it's easy to love kids in Africa. It's the least one can do and still be considered a good person. I donated $10 to an organization that gives clean water to tribes in Africa. Kierkegaard's response would be, That's great, and no one thinks that's a bad thing. But that's not love. What about the lady who cut you off this line in store? Can you love that person with the same passion and vigor that you have for those tribes in Africa? The idea is he's saying that it's easy to love people who you don't talk to or interact with, or even know they exist, because it's an idea. It's easy to love ideas. Because when we're faced with the fact that we must really love the person who annoys us, who stands against us in every way, we're really bad at that. And that's who we have to focus on loving as much as we can if we're even going to begin what the eternal Christian love is. Now, Kierkegaard would say, Christianity calls us to, quote, forsake the dissimilarities of earthly life, end quote. Because every person is our neighbor, regardless of any temporal distinctions. When we see all people as in, quote, eternal resemblance, end quote, and love them simply on the basis of this resemblance, they're all moral, rational beings who are equally created by the one eternal being, God and designed for eternal life that they can receive through his mercy. As a result, we're called to choose to, quote, exist equally for every human being, end quote, and to do this unconditionally. In other words, we're called to love all others without requiring that they change something about themselves to make them more lovable. And this means doing anything you can to benefit that person. Now, I know you're probably thinking, Sure, we can all be better at loving people we don't like. But what about the murderers, the racists, sexists? I mean people who continually hate others. And me. You can't possibly expect me to love those people. I mean, by loving them, aren't I partaking in their sexism, racism, or what have you? And Kierkegaard would say, well, no. You have to do what's best for that person. And obviously that doesn't mean you condone their actions or behaviors, but it certainly doesn't mean hitting them over the head with your opinions. I mean, how much love is involved when we're typing our keyboards to death because someone posted something we don't like, or yelling louder that the other person's trying to kill us all? It comes down to the self-deception we addressed in the beginning. I mean, can you say we're actually doing something out of love when we're 
literally engulfed by hatred. This is what we do every day. And the key to understanding this is simply stepping back and asking, is what I say, post, argue, out of love? And if you come to the conclusion that you in fact love everyone and approach everything with someone you disagree with correctly, then you're in self-deception. Because the more we understand about what love is, the more we realize that we fall infinitely short of what we're called to. Kierkegaard would say we owe an infinite debt to every person we meet. We owe a debt of love and gratitude that can never be satisfied. What the first two deliberations really explain can be best pictured by its contrast with the show The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. We're programmed to think that love, whether it be a relationship or with friends, is some sort of competition. We meet people, we decide how much we like them based on how they look and how they can love us. And the moment we find an aspect we don't like, we disregard them as someone we'll love or be a friend to, or in the worst case, someone worthy of value altogether. And this isn't a diss on the show itself. Even I will agree that when you have one person fighting 12 others to find love while being simultaneously controlled by producers and executives, it makes for interesting TV. No, Kierkegaard is saying that when we put this on a pedestal, we defraud ourselves of what love really has to offer, and that we're chasing a self-defeating dream. Because once the show ends, each participant returns home from their eight-week vacation and faces life expecting the same results as the show. It doesn't often end well. And when we view this as reality, as the audience, we leave the couch thinking, why can't I find love? I mean a true romantic love. And that's just it, because it simply doesn't exist. But something far greater that even TV producers can't replicate is just waiting to be discovered. The problem is, this means we're called to take Instagram, The Bachelor, The Office, and all the other ways we view love off the pedestal and trust that something else might just work. Kierkegaard begins the third deliberation by saying that, quote, love is the fulfilling of the law, end quote. And when we look at Jesus, we have to recognize that by virtue of being perfect in love, Christ fulfilled the law. And we see that the reward for this type of love is that Jesus was hated. I mean, we look towards love to make us happy and feel good, but if we accept that Jesus was love and then look and see that Jesus was hated, why would we suddenly believe that the outcome would be different for us? People in general have this great talent that's been developed over the course of human history to be able to hear and see what they want to hear and see. And, and this isn't a new idea. And Kierkegaard wasn't the first person to put this together. I mean, even Obi-Wan Kenobi echoes the same sentiment to Luke Skywalker when he warns Luke not to trust his eyes. He says, quote, your eyes can deceive you, end quote. Now, let's say you're shopping for a new car, and you have your eyes set on the brand new Ford Fusion. It's sporty, it's good for the environment, it comes in the beloved slate gray, and you drive away from your dealership in your worn-down station wagon, and you notice the Ford Fusion next to you at the stoplight. And wouldn't you know it, another one in the drive-thru at Wendy's. And your neighbor, two doors down from you, just got their Ford Fusion. And suddenly you think, 
I never knew there were so many Ford Fusions. Well, of course there's a lot on the road. It's a great car. Everyone already figured out the secret of the Ford Fusion. I might be missing out if I don't get one. But the reality is, there's probably no more Ford Fusions on the road now than, say, 20 minutes ago, before you even knew it existed. You just didn't care because it didn't mean anything to you until the potential that you might buy one yourself. And this phenomenon is called motivated perception, and it's certainly not a new discovery, but the world we conceive is not exactly an accurate representation of what it truly is. It's based on a biased perception. And when we're faced with two perceptions, our natural instinct is to accept the perception that benefits us. So, when we're presented with two different possible interpretations, we naturally are more inclined to default to the interpretation that benefits us more. And this is how Kierkegaard is representing love. We have two ways to view love. On one hand, we can see it as this emotional high that we can enjoy and cherish. And on the other hand, we can see love as a form of self-sacrifice that doesn't directly benefit us, or at least doesn't benefit us in the way we would want it to or even in a way that we could alternatively have it. So when Christ comes and tells us that we're misinterpreting love, we immediately get defensive because we're thinking, hey, you can't tell me how to love. You're trying to take this awesome experience away from me. When Christ is telling us, no, 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 I'm not taking anything away from you. I'm trying to show you how to obtain the real thing, not some warped version of love you see. I mean, I created this thing. Don't you think I know how it works? And this isn't to say that there won't be romantic feelings or feelings of friendship or brotherly love. No, that's going to happen regardless of whether you want it to happen. We are human, but when we fixate on that feeling, then we dilute all the possibilities for love. And we basically say that unless that feeling is there, we can't have any form of love. Kierkegaard says, quote, To love God is to love oneself truly. To help another person to love God is to love another person, and to be helped by another person to love God is to be loved." End quote. True love is this way because Christianity teaches us that love is a relationship between a person, God, and another person. That is, God is the middle term. No one should ever assume God's position in another person's life. To worship and idolize people is idolatry. Just as to be worshipped and idolized by other people is idolatry. To worship God and to love people is what true love is. So we start to see that Christ's love was a form of unhappy love. Because when he loved people, there was always a horrible collision. He collided with what we would naturally consider to be love. That he would make life better and happier for his apostles, and certainly not worse and unhappy. But indeed, Christ lived, quote, in order to give himself without resistance into the powers of his enemies, end quote. And he left his apostles to suffer the exact same. Kierkegaard asks, was this actually love? And he would claim, yes, because anyone who becomes a Christian must, quote, willingly endure being hated as a reward for one's love, even as one helps the other person to love God. Once again, that term, self-deception, becomes such a key role in how we view love. Because to accept this type of love comes at a profound cost. 
so we're naturally inclined to reject it and deceive ourselves into returning to this other view of love. But Kierkegaard would say that to love falsely is to hate. And that doesn't sound nice, but it's far easier to enjoy that hate than to face the reality of what love is. Kierkegaard gives us this guide to see where we tend to lean in this process of Christian love, and it goes something like this. We as humans confide in confidence with whomever we're closest to and love the most. This could be a spouse, a best friend, a parent, whoever. But when we confide in confidence with God, it places Him at the centermost relationship in our lives and allows from that all other relationships to grow through His example of love. Kierkegaard points out three deceptions for why we avoid this type of love. And the first is dejection. People avoiding loving others because they're unable to handle their own unhappiness. So picture the guy that just sits in a dark basement eating pizza pockets all day because his life is just so miserable and it's not even worth going outside and attempting love. The second is accusation. People accuse others of not being worth love instead of holding themselves accountable for not properly understanding what love is. This is the person that gets rejected by a friend or a significant other, and their only response is, well, I actually didn't even like them anyways. They're stupid, and I just gave them the best opportunity for a relationship. They really missed out. The third is a proud self-satisfaction that considers it futile to seek what could be worthy of. Now, this is people only focus on others' shortcomings and fail to notice how they need to grow. And that's simply, no one is good enough for me. Why would I even waste my time on these peasants? You know, I'd bet if we were willing to be honest with ourselves, we've all done at least one of these, if not all of them, in the name of self-preservation. I mean, I've done all of these just in the last week. But we're really good at avoiding love and not even knowing it. But we're called to love these people, faults and all. Kierkegaard gives us the example where Peter denies Jesus, and he spends a considerable amount of time explaining the extent of the betrayal. I mean, Peter was incredibly close with Jesus and loved him, and at the moment of truth where Peter could stand up for Jesus and what he believes, he bails, completely throws Jesus under the bus, and Kierkegaard points out that this would be a dagger in the heart for Jesus. I mean, for your best friend to throw you to the wolves to save his own skin, But what is Jesus' response? Anger? Disgust? Rejection? No, it's love. Quote, As when a mother sees a child in danger through its own carelessness, and now, since she cannot manage to grasp the child, she catches it with her admittedly reproachful but also saving look. End quote. Christ's love for Peter is not contingent on his ability to profess Jesus. No. Peter is Peter, and I love him, and that's why I wouldn't break off a friendship, but persevered to allow him to become a different person, that he would eventually die for Christ's sake. Would the story have been the same if Jesus just said, when Peter has changed, then he can become my friend again? Kierkegaard doesn't seem to think so, and I'd have to agree with him. And this is what he's trying to say it is to love who we see, to love our neighbor. Quote, We human beings speak of finding the perfect person in order to love him, whereas Christianity speaks about being the perfect person, or at least pursuing perfection, who boundlessly loves the person he sees, 
and to love the person you see just as you see him, with all his imperfections and weaknesses. To love him as you see him when he's changed completely, when he no longer loves you, but perhaps turns away indifferent, or turns away to love another. To love him as you see him when he betrays and denies you. End quote. And that's what we're going to explore in the next few episodes. If you enjoyed the show today, then great. We got more episodes that are going to be a little bit longer. If this wasn't your cup of tea, thanks for listening to the ramblings of someone who's oddly obsessed with Soren Kierkegaard, and we hope you come back in a later episode. For everyone else, I hope you enjoyed the show today. I'll see you next time.